Okay, well, what do you think when the teacher just keeps saying the same thing over and over week after week after week? We're into our fifth week on judgment, and basically we've been saying about the same thing. You know, we talk about God is going to bring judgment on Judah and Assyria is going to come down, but yet God won't let them destroy it. Well, that this keeps going on for a little while. Actually, about through 39, chapter 39. And so we're moving into the 30s tonight, so we're getting there. <laughs> but, you know, you gotta got to hang with it, right? You know, but um, actually, I think it's, it's said real well in verse 11 of chapter 28. That's one of the chapters we're in tonight. Uh, actually, verse 10. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And we'll explain that a little bit more later. But Isaiah kept preaching the same message. And they were tired of hearing him say the same thing. It was just like he was a little kid saying a simple message to him. There's going to be judgment coming. you know. And it was, it was very easily understood. And uh, they made fun of him. And, uh, of course, God kept giving the, basically the same message, different kind of words and pictures, but uh, it's, you know, how many more ways can you say it other than God is going to have to judge sin? But, uh, so in case you're thinking, Dennis, you keep repeating yourself, uh, we just are continuing to go through <laughs> these chapters. And, uh, <laughs> that's right, uh, yeah. Well, uh, Jerusalem means a city of peace. You've heard of Yerushalayim. Uh, city of peace, but uh, it's kind of funny. You look at down through history and it's basically associated with conflict. <laughs> and even today, you know, you have you hear about Jerusalem and, and what do you hear? Well, you hear all sorts of conflict. And of course, you hear in Scripture where, uh, like in Psalm 122.6, it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? And uh, why not pray for London or Moscow or Washington, D.C.? Well, we probably should. We should pray for those cities. But where there is true peace in Jerusalem, there will be peace in the world. And, of course, you look in Isaiah, and that's what he's saying when God finally puts his peace you know, uh, out in all the world. Everybody will have peace. That will have it. So what we're going to be looking at today is 28, 29, 30, and 31. And there are five woes, mainly on Jerusalem. And, of course, we'll point that out. In chapter 28, verse 1, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. So there's one woe. Then in chapter 29, verse 1, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel the city where David once camped. So there's our second one. And then in verse 15 of chapter 29, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And in chapter 30, verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit. Then in chapter um, 31, verse 1, almost all of them in the first verses, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. So with those woes, we can see that uh, he continues to um, prophesy judgment. 
uh, and uh, mainly on Jerusalem. And Isaiah is actually trying to get the rulers to stop trusting in the power politics of the day. Um, and that would be uh, Egypt, for one, trying to rely on them and their armies and their horses rather than trusting in the Lord. They weren't to trust in anything but the Lord. And uh, so there we are with a little bit of a brief overview summary of what we're dealing with. And uh, we'll see how the Lord uh, brings forth um, His prophecy through Isaiah again. Nothing new, but we'll see how He says a little bit different. And then we'll keep looking at the Lord, His promises, and how great He is, and how He works this judgment, His plans, His purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for who You are. You are the great God. You are the awesome one. You are a God of majesty. And may our attention be upon You and help us to focus on You. Help us not to trust in things, money, other people, how many different ways there can be that we can trust Him, but it finally comes down to trusting in You and trusting in You alone. And so we uh, get, once again, a little bit of pre-written history, and we see how You execute it, and yet at the same time, You continue to offer Your grace, and You show Your wisdom in everything that You do. In Jesus' name, Amen. In chapter 28, um, we see that he's warning Jerusalem. Now, he's he's talked about other nations. We, we saw about the surrounding nations, not only on Judah and Israel, but then we saw all those other nations that were around, Babylon, Assyria, Arabia, Egypt, and uh, all of those guys. And then last week we saw that there's judgment on all the nations of the world all throughout the history of mankind. And, um, of course, God is going to eventually uh, show that Christ is the, the king of all the nations. And so now he gets uh, very local as he uh, shows forth his judgment on, on Jerusalem, basically. Um, in the first uh, five, six verses, he mentions Ephraim. That would be the northern ten tribes. And he's, usually he's not saying too much about them in this section, but he starts off with them because if Jerusalem and Judah would see what happens to the ten tribes, you would think they would take notice, learn from that, and say, we don't want that to happen to us. Let's obey God. Right? Right? And so we, we get just a little glimpse of um, what what happened to Ephraim. And, of course, the same thing that happened to them is what's going to happen to, to Judah. Uh, Isaiah loves Jerusalem. It's, of course, in the Psalms you, you see so often about God's dwelling place. Of course, he lives everywhere, his dwelling place. He, he's not bound in one place, but it, it's, a, it's a city that, that God has put forth as a place that he... You know, works from, but it, it you know it, it definitely focuses on who he is. Really, he is the one that uh, uh, is the king there. But what he's seeing is there are storm clouds coming. There's something that's going to be happening. 
uh, trouble. Trouble is on the way. The dark clouds are there. And surely those northern ten tribes would be such a warning to them. If Assyria conquers um, Samaria, then Judah is going to be next. So he starts off, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim representing uh, Israel there. Ten tribes. And they have, they're, they're prideful, um, arrogant. Uh, Samaria sat like a beautiful crown at, uh, at one time. They thought they were impregnable. They thought that uh, nobody could penetrate them. And they had their uh, luxury. They had their pleasure. They didn't fear their enemies. And now it's coming to that, that point. So they have luxury and pleasure. We see that God calls them drunkards. Now there's a spiritual drunkenness, a spiritual stupor. We know that that is the major point. But uh, throughout this chapter, we see this mentioned a lot about drunkenness, drunkards. And historically and, and biblically, we can see that was a, a major problem. To the Jews... Um, uh, of course, they, they were blessed by God to give them the, the fruit of the vine. But God warned against drunkenness. We know that uh, this was kind of a symbol of joy, uh, but how they used it was another thing. Of course, you can think of uh, many Old Testament passages, especially in the, in the Proverbs, about how God warns against drunkenness. And uh, it's often uh, an outward sign of what uh, an a nation can be inwardly. They literally are drunkards. So it's, 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 so it talks about the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty. I mean, it was it was uh, had its own own little crown in a way. And, and some people said this. Um, there was an official in Washington D.C. He said we have three parties in this city, Washington D.C. We have the Democratic problem or party. Democratic problem. problem. <laughs> I, I didn't even mean to say it like that. <laughs> the the Republican Party and the Cocktail Party. Uh, D.C. has been known to be ranking high, very high on the list of cities that uh, are noted for alcohol consumption. Um, and, of course, a lot of them are the politicians. <laughs> I've even heard here in Jeff City that uh, heard some of the, the stories, you know. So yeah, it's it's almost like a, as you look at this, what hope is there for a, a, an affluent, pleasure-loving society that may give a little bit of lip service to religion, but yet they ignore the consequences of sin, and that there be judgment. And uh, of course, I think that uh, this nation. You'd think it'd wake up when there are tragedies and things happen uh, that are, are just horrible, and yet um, it has nothing to do with uh, the consequences of sin. It's everything else but that. So you know he uh, he mentions that he says in verse two, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent. Of course, we've heard that so many times. He's going to use the nation to bring on some judgment as a storm of hail so they're compared to a storm of hail a, a tempest of destruction like a storm of mighty overflowing waters so I think what you're getting there is uh, um, th- that would be like uh, compared to a flood compared to a storm a storm, a hail storm verse 3 calls them drunkards again of Ephraim and again it mentions the fading flower of its glorious beauty 
And then he even talks about the ripe fig. Uh, just the very first ones that come out, people pluck them right off and get them right out of there real, real quickly. Uh, they, they get that first ripe fig off. Um, and that's way that God is going to do as he brings forth his judgment. It's going to be done quickly. And uh, verse 5 says, In that day the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown. He's the crown. They thought they had their crown, Ephraim did. That was their uh, fading flower, and their proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And, of course, he is the one that uh, has a beautiful crown, a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. So right in the middle of all this judgment that he's talking about, he sticks in that great promise again. It's the remnant. And to us, or who are in that remnant, um, we see that he's the beautiful crown, the glorious diadem. And verse 7, then uh, he talks about wine, strong drink. Look at this. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. So in, uh, in, in uh, their Judaism there, and the leaders, the priests, the prophets were drunkards. And uh, they were confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. So it's pretty visual with what uh, was going on with them and their, the, the leaders there. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that, that is um, dealing with the, the five through eight, I think that would be with Judah. Um, I'm sure they were probably rejoicing that the ten tribes were, going, uh, were being taken. Uh, but for them, uh, having a celebration didn't last that long because later God brought the judgment on them. So you have carousing by the priests, the prophets, they're drunks. There's a Japanese proverb. You're not going to find this in our proverbs, but it's, I think it's um, kind of interesting. First, the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. <laughs> and uh, pretty wise there. And so uh, it did there as well as any society. And 9 and 10 is where the people are mocking Isaiah as he gives prophecy to him, and he keeps preaching basically the same message. Basically, what really, it's what we have been over on the 1, 2, 3, 4. This is our fifth week, right? And it's the same thing. What we've heard is what he told them. And um, so... It says he'll need to speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Now, that's interesting. That's in verse 11. I forgot verse 10, though, or verse 9. To whom he would teach knowledge, to whom he had interpret the message. Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Um, and um, I think most of the commentators, as I was reading here, it's like. They're saying he talks to us as though we're little children, and he keeps saying things over and over and over and over, and at the same time he talks to us like like a little kid. So why take him seriously? And then he's going to come back a little bit later and, and tell why. But an, a, a society that takes that kind of attitude whenever God's people and God's word is being brought forth, and they mock it or make fun of it or you know how they do right. Um, we know that uh, God is actually giving them uh, truth and they don't um, take it as truth. They made fun of Amos. Um, 
Amos just a little bit to your right there. You have Ezekiel, you have Daniel and and such, and in Hosea, Joel. Okay, where's my Amos here? I had it. My fingers aren't going to it. Anybody found it yet? Here we go. My fingers are dry. Okay. Amos chapter 7, verse 10. They did this with uh, Amos. They made fun of him as he preached the Word of God. He was a farmer, by the way. He's just a farmer. But he is told to give the message from God. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says this, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Now, people don't want to hear that. So they get their own prophets, and they get the the good news, and they don't hear anything that is true that's dealing with judgment. They don't want to hear that. So, uh, in Amos 7 and verse 12, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, Flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it's a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. (laughs) Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Oh, he was doing just fine as being, you know, the the shepherd there. But God tells him to go tell the bad news. Now, hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city, your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. That was his message. People didn't like that. And so um, they made fun of Amos. They made fun of Isaiah. Like he's just uh, speaking to them as little kids, saying the same thing over and over. And they don't want to hear that. They want to hear something very intelligent. And uh, so, you know, they laugh at him. And um, it's, it's interesting that Amos, you know, same kind of thing that's going on there. He's a simple farmer, a, a sheep herder, and not a member of the religious elite at all. He doesn't identify with the insiders, you know. But God told him to go out and say this to these people. Now, as you as you keep on going, and God is just wanting them to understand, the message is simple, isn't it? But they don't want to hear it. And then in verse eleven, indeed, He will speak to this people. Okay, He's going to speak. You want something rather profound that you can't understand? It'll be through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And what you have there is that he's going to bring foreigners in 
and it'll be from a tongue that you will not understand. That's in verse 11. Isaiah. Go to Jeremiah, right after Isaiah, Jeremiah 5, 5. He's going to say about the same thing. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God, but they too with one accord have broke... Uh, let's see. You know what? I think that... I think it's verse 15. That's what it is. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, it is an enduring nation. It's an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know. Nor can you understand what they say. I'm going to bring in another nation. I'm bringing in an army. They're going to conquer you. They're going to. I'm bringing in foreigners from a, with a foreign language. Um, I think it's interesting. Paul picked up on this whenever there was the issue of speaking in tongues in Corinth. And in chapter 14, he tells a reason why. And, of course, we know uh, at uh, the day of Pentecost, there uh, people were speaking in different tongues from their own country. And that was a picture there of what was going to happen. But God used that as a judgment to them. I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to bring people in, and they're going to speak. It's going to be a foreign language. Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul actually takes uh, some of this out of our Isaiah passage and puts it in uh, verse 21. In the law, and when he says law here, he's talking about the whole law, the the whole old... in the uh, Old Testament, for instance. It is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So really the tongues were a sign for the unbelievers. And whenever people saw uh, at the day of Pentecost, for instance, that's where a sign actually started there. And it ultimately goes all to 70 A.D. where you know he uh, uh, conquers the people uh, by Titus of uh, the Romans. And uh, he brought in, uh, again, a different language there. But the, the, the tongues that was being spoken, he said, here's the reason... For that, it's a sign to the unbelievers that God is going to make a judgment. If you don't follow Christ, if you don't follow My way, if you don't, if you're not in obedience to Me, then there will be judgment to you. And so He takes the Old Testament um, foreign language that came in to uh, Israel, Judah, and the same thing happened here. There, here are people speaking now foreign languages inside the body of Christ. And people actually were hearing a, a language that they, they didn't know. So he takes something out of the Old Testament, plants it in there, and he says it's really a sign to unbelievers. That's an interesting twist there that Paul brings forth. It's showing that God will bring judgment 
and uh, he ultimately did there, even in, in that time. So, a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament. Um, verse 13, he comes right back. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Uh, precept on precept. Here, there, a little bit there. You know, order on order, he's, he's saying. Um, and, and, you know, that to them, it, it, it was like it was repetitive and they didn't care to hear that. It was just simple, and uh, they had no use for that. But God's going to speak to them with a foreign language, and that would be the sign. And of course, that, that happened to them, didn't it? They were given a plain message, a plain language, so that all could understand. They rejected it. And so, they continue on their way. They're warned. Judah is. Um, verse 15, again, here's what we've seen steadily because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made a pact the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception now they're not saying that but that's really what it's going to come down to and when it says they made a covenant with death and with Sheol uh, they were trying to make a a covenant pact with Egypt that's really what they were doing and um, so you can you can see that constantly he's going to be mentioning that all the way through political alliances trusting in them rather than God. Yeah. Right. Well, they were definitely scoffers. Mm-hmm. In in the days of Ahaz, King Ahaz, they made a, a secret treaty with Assyria. And even in the days of Hezekiah, which was a good king, they even turned to Egypt for help. We see that in chapter 30 and 31. And now we get another key verse. We get one there in 11 about the stammering lips and a foreign tongue. You know, we can say, okay, we can see how Paul applied that. Verse 16, everybody knows this verse. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. How many times have we heard that one? Now you can uh, you can find that in, uh, of course, I think Peter uh, quotes that. And uh, you see it in other places. I think uh, Romans and Psalms 118.22. The I lay in Zion, a stone, a precious cornerstone. And of course, who is that? What is the stone? The Messiah. The Rock of Ages, right? We talked about last week, the Rock of Ages was, was brought out in there. And despite all that, they thought God would not judge them. And in verses 21 through 29, he keeps bringing forth what uh, what's, what's going to happen. Matter of fact, verse 21, right at the end of it, He says to do his task, unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. Uh, The work that he's going to do in in his judging. Um, In in the past, they would probably think, yeah, but what about David over the Philistines? God always uh, delivered his people. Um, Of course, we can think of the... uh, 
escape from uh, Egypt? How about Joshua's victory over the Amorites? But what's the difference here? They were godly leaders. They were obedient to God. They obeyed His Word. God accomplished His purpose through them. And in this case here, as He does His work, His extraordinary work, He will accomplish His purpose here. He knows exactly what tool to use and when to use it. And so the amazing power of God uh, is, is shown. At the end of that chapter, it culminates with, This also comes from the Lord of hosts who made His counsel wonderful and His wisdom great. It's amazing how He carries this on. And He works His plan all the way through. So His counsel, His purpose, uh, the divine counsels of God, they're wonderful, aren't they? His wisdom is great. That's chapter 28. Chapter 29. What's the first word? Whoa. And he says, Oh, Ariel. That's interesting. And he says, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Where do you think that's at? Remember the city of David? There in right at Jerusalem. Ariel was considered uh, to be a code name for Jerusalem. And it means Lion of God. The only thing is, the lion hasn't been such a uh, wonderful lion. And the lion is also a symbol of Assyria. So the prophet may have been saying Assyria is now God's lion, even though you're considered to be Jerusalem God's lion, but it's a name only for the moment. And so, and, and by the way, the Hebrew word can also mean um, uh, altar hearth. And I think that's probably appropriate because there's like an altar there in Jerusalem in the sense there's going to be quite the sacrifice where offerings were sacrificed as far as the temple is concerned. Um, the city, and especially eventually, will be sacrificed for time. And uh, so he says in verse 2, I'll bring distress in Ariel. Verse 3, I'll camp against you, encircling you. I'll uh, set siege works. I'll raise up battle towers against you. And that's what happened when Assyria came there. And of course... Uh, Later, Babylon fulfilled that completely. Um, there's outward uh, worship going on in the... Oh, it's kind of interesting. In verse 4, uh, you'll be brought low. From the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you prostrate, your words will come. Look how low and how humbling he brings them. Your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground and your speech will whisper from the dust, come from the earth, kind of like that of a medium spirit. You, you see, they had uh, actually practiced necromancy, uh, speaking with the dead. The voice of the dead was supposed to have come from the ground. Anything? Yeah, the uh, yeah, a lot of focused on that kind of death there without the. 
And he says in verse 7, now here's a promise that comes back, and the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold and who distress her, it'll be like a dream, a vision of the night. It'll be as when a hungry man dreams and behold he's eating, but when he awakens his hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold he's drinking, but when he awakens behold he is faint and his third is not, thirst is not quenched, thus the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. <laughs> so he says they're not, it's not going to last very long. It's just like a dream, and then it vanishes. And, of course, we know these empires who had come in and taken all the nations, and then Israel and Judah, we know that their little empire didn't last very long at all. And uh, that could be uh, one way, but he, he brings out the drunkenness and the staggering and everything in verse 9. But he, I think he's talking about um, the, their spiritual sense. Uh, be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and He has covered your heads, the seers. Uh, verse 13, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words, and here we go, and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Well, that says a lot there, doesn't it? They had become very religious outwardly, but their tradition, you know, it's it's like the prayers that are said, but they have no meaning to them. They just say the words. Like people can learn uh, something so biblical as "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." You know, and not even know what they've just said. Boy, can anybody identify with that, <laughs> Debbie? <laughs> you, you understand where that came from, right, uh, Carmela? Right, Carolyn? <laughs> I think. Uh, there's an outward worship, but it's nothing a, inward. It's more than a mantra. It's another foreign God. When it's sitting there saying that, it has no. It's something you're supposed to say, but there's no nothing. It doesn't mean anything. I always wondered if you were supposed to feel a certain way when you said those things, because I I never felt anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have I have trouble with saying it's the Lord's prayer because it wasn't. It was the Lord's answer to our. Started right off the bat. That's not Joseph, that's not St. Peter, that's not only one mediator. Yeah. There's none. It's like repeating a creed or something. Yeah, it's like, but it has nothing to do with anything. There's no attachment at all to anything. And so it's like the the more times you repeat it. Yeah, and then that's how you're supposed to get grace. Repetition. And, And then that's how you get grace. That's like saying the rosary. That's exactly how you get grace is by repeating these mantras, but there's no value to God to them, and they don't even, you know, but that's all He's requiring is for us to do these mantras to Him. That's exactly what uh, the the people in Judah were doing. You know, I've heard so 
much criticism from from people from um, Christian friends of mine on liturgy, any liturgy, a liturgical mm-hmm. service that it is just saying the words and nobody means it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I told one that mm-hmm. I beg your pardon. I mean it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She said yeah. nobody means it. Mm-hmm. I said, <laughs> I'm worshiping the Lord here. <laughs> well, Andy, my one son-in-law said one time, I forget what we were talking about, he was to Bible study, and of course his family's all Catholics, and he said, well, it's just tradition. Mm-hmm. You just do mm-hmm. the lesson you've been told. Yeah, you know, I mean, he, yeah. he didn't know anything about it. It's just mm-hmm. tradition, that's why. Yeah. Whatever. So and this is a danger for anybody to get into where that, that outward form, but what what is there can be absolutely true. I mean, somebody can read Scripture. Well, we've got those catechisms and stuff, and then you go through all that stuff. But, I mean, you can teach a child to do that stuff, but until somebody breaks it apart, you pull it away from where they're used to seeing it. You know, you know, then that's that like precept and prime precept, the very thing about very childishness that you sit there and you dwindle it down to make them look inside of it instead of just the callous mumbling that you're supposed to do at a particular time. Yeah. Right. But if they never learn it, Janice, they can be so intrigued by what those words, and that's like even hymns. People you know, don't like the hymns and stuff like that, and you're kind of going... Yeah, because it's just something you've heard. But do you ever wonder why those people wrote what they wrote? You know, that's what it's saying. And why they didn't know it. Yeah, and stuff like that. But it's like, just break some words and look at them and break them apart. <coughs> and look at them and then you'll see the... Yeah, you know where we were talking about earlier about him shutting their eyes and then... Um, Keeping people from getting any kind of uh, truth, sometimes he, he shuts it off. You know, Jesus in uh, John nine and thirty nine, he said, and Jesus said, "For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind." <laughs> That's radical. It's a radical statement. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, "We're not blind too, are we?" And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. <laughs> because they had the truth. But they thought, because of their religious ways, that everything was okay. And it wasn't. So they were uh, really sent into a spiritual stupor, I guess you could say. They couldn't understand their own law, even though they taught it. I see people take the Bible and there's a Bible and it's like, ooh, it's mystical. It's not it's not something to learn learn by, to live by. It's just this kind of a mystical like, you know, I, like we said the story, so you have people like that's the holy Bible. And going, no, it's God's word. You know, you, you know, it's like this. Yeah, it's like they was the book has magical powers or something in it instead of having God's word in it that would, you know, change their hearts or something like that. Yeah. Why would when the girl whose priest told her that the Bible is not for lay people? Mm-hmm. I missed her. Yeah. Exactly. That's when I quit going. Yeah. 
Not supposed to be reading. <coughs> That's sad, isn't it? forgets history, doesn't pay attention to it, 
and of course history is being written out of our history books has already been written out anything even where our nation got its start from just simple things uh, and of course the history of how uh, man got started you know just big lies on some of the most basic elements of, of truth and so they they forgot their history really all they have to do is look back well uh, it never did anybody good when they went down to Egypt really did it uh, if they're going down there for help when they get into a little trouble um, I'm going to quote from Benjamin Franklin and I'm not saying that he is a Christian but interesting uh, he definitely was a religious man he had heard uh, George Whitfield preach <coughs> And he found him rather fascinating. He loved to hear him speak and talk. But uh, at a constitutional convention in Philadelphia, this is in 1787, he said this, I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations to be held in this assembly every morning. Benjamin Franklin. Talking about prayer. Talking about God governing the affairs of men. Um, Isaiah was seeking this from a religious people and he was scoffed at. Anyway. The uh, Lord kept appealing to Jerusalem. We'll move into chapter 30. He rebukes Jerusalem here. Verse 1, you have another woe. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. Now that's quite a rebuke, isn't it? And to seek shelter in the shadow of his wings? No. Of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. They were so trusting in Egypt. So he accuses them of, of this. They had leaned on Egypt. They were, they were feeble. But we know that what Moses did as he led them out of Egypt, he sought after God. Then Joshua sought after God. David sought after God. Uh, they did not make political alliances, totally trusted in, in the Lord in any time that it looked bleak. And you get to verses 6 and 7, it talks about a caravan traveling from Jerusalem to Egypt with treasures so they can go and buy some protection. And it's all in vain. It says, The oracle concerning the beast of the Negev through a land of distress and anguish, from where comes lioness and lion, viper and a flying servant, to carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I call her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Egypt, uh, 
was was called Rahab. Rahab can mean strength. It can also mean sitting idle in the Hebrew. It's it's used of Egypt in that way. And of course they um, they sat idle. Whenever Israel needed help from Egypt, they didn't get any help from Egypt. <laughs> Egypt didn't help them out. Couldn't do it. Um, there they are. They're they're carrying um, treasures down there to make a deal. Now that's pretty uh, visual, isn't it? You get the a straight out thought of what what is going on there. Um, it says in verse eight. Now go write it on a tablet before them and scribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. Write this down. Put it down. Of course, we're reading it right now. It's a witness forever. It's a witness of what happened. He says, this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. And that's what it comes down to. Who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. <laughs> there we go. That's right. Prophesy illusions. And so, you know, they would actually, they even put prophets in, in jail. They would kill them and saw off of psalm in half. <laughs> That's some of the things that happened because they spoke truth. And they would hire their own prophets to tell them everything is all good, peace, safety. Of course, that's uh, kind of the things that we're, we're warned of, too. Just when you think there's peace, sudden destruction comes, right? Mm. So, anyway, uh, it continues on. Um, verse 15, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you'll be saved. In repentance, rest. If you have belief in me, if you trust in me, if you uh, and repent, you'll be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing, and you said, "No, for we will flee on horses." If we get the Egyptian horses, whenever the enemy comes, we can get out of here. We can fly. We're okay. Uh, that never happened. They were not able to flee on those imported horses that came from Egypt. We're not able to do that. Um, and you said in verse 16, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you're left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. <coughs> And then you get this twist back into how gracious God is. At the same time, He's a just God. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He continues to offer His grace even though here is what they do. Uh, the land will be restored. Uh, they can become prosperous people. But... There's going to be a slaughter. Um, says uh, he waits on high to have compassion on you. This is in verse uh, 18. The Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him. And that's really what it 
comes down to. Uh, o people in Zion, verse 19, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. O the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Some will wake up. Some he will put his truth into. Their hearts will be opened. And... Uh, they no longer will be trusting in their idols. Verse 22, the images overlaid with silver, images plated with gold. Uh, same story all the way through. Verse 26, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days on the day. The Lord binds up the fracture of His people and heals the bruise He has inflicted. What a promise. Behold, verse 27, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is His anger and dense is His smoke. Here comes the justice. His lips are filled with indignation and His tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent. This is really colorful, isn't it? Very poetic. Uh, very, uh, the imagery is brilliant. He talks about to shake the nations back and forth in a seed, so He will judge those nations. He spoke about His grace. And he talks about Assyria being judged in 29. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival. And gladness of heart is when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause His voice of authority to be heard and the descending of His arm to be seen in fierce anger. Here we go. And the flame of consuming fire in cloudbursts, downpour, and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when He strikes with the rod and every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres and in battles, brandishing weapons, he will fight them. He uses Topheth. For Topheth has long been ready. It's been prepared for the king. Topheth would be prepared uh, for the king in that uh, just as Sheol was prepared for the king of Babylon, Topheth is prepared for the king of Assyria. What, what is that? Well, the worshippers of Molech sacrificed their children there. And then it was, we're talking about in Jerusalem, it was turned into a garbage dump and it was named Gehenna. We're familiar with Gehenna. That's an, and in the New Testament, that's the word for hell. Oh, how humiliating this is for Assyria. They would be a garbage dump, is what he's saying there. For Topheth has been ready, and deed has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. So we get the whole thing. We get judgment on Israel, judgment on Judah. We get God's grace for the remnant, and uh, then He turns right back around and says He's going to, you know, continue to bring this judgment. Then He, he talks about uh, what they were doing as trying to lean on another nation whenever they're getting ready to be struck. And um, it, it continues on, doesn't it? Um, verse 1 of chapter 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Have we heard this before? God is making it very clear. This is why they're saying to Jeremiah, oh, line upon line, precept upon precept, you're, you're, that's the way you teach little children. You think we're little children? 
And God just keeps saying the same thing over and over. 39 chapters of this with brief little respites in between for the promise to the remnant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's. Look at American history. We repeat the same. Nobody looks at history to say we're going down the same road. Look at all the other empires. Going down the same road. Doing the same thing as his own people. We get tied up in this too. He has to keep bringing us back. Yeah, and eventually, yeah, we can bring it. We can look at history, and then we can bring it right back down to our even Christians. You know, in the sense that we can be disobedient, relying on everything but Him. He says, rely on horses. They did trust in chariots because they are many, and the horsemen because they're very strong. Everything looked really good. You know, I mean, they they were mounting all this up. But it says in verse um, 1 of 31, But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek Yahweh. Uh, Verse 3, The Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. We battle not against flesh and blood. Uh, It's a spiritual thing there. The Lord will stretch out His hand and He who helps will stumble and He who has helped will fall and all of them will come to an end together. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey against which a band of shepherds is called out and he will not be terrified at their voice nor disturbed at their noise, (laughs) so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill." Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Not going to be destroyed ultimately. And so this is, uh, your 31 is really kind of a summary of what Isaiah has already told the people. It's line upon line. They don't get the message. Uh, going down to Egypt was always a temptation to the Jews. God will pounce on Assyria like a lion, though. Does a lion fear a flock of sheep? That's really what's being spoke about here in our in our verse four. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, God is. Go back to Egypt because that'd be like saying go back into the flesh because it was rather slavery, but then you were still taken care of in some way. Yeah, it's a great analogy. I think even today, even uh, uh, we as Christians, Keith. Keith Green wrote a song called Going Back to Egypt. So you want to go back to Egypt. There you go. You remember that one, right? Oh, yeah. Boy, does that ever tell our the Christian's plight. How often we want to go back to... Being enslaved to the things of the flesh, but they were familiar. That's right. And, of course, the leeks and the onions and... That's right. Egypt is a, a good analogy for our sins, isn't it? Uh, you know, you can think of Babylon. You know, that's that's a good picture, an analogy of that sense. But sounds like the Book of James. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, to finish it out in verse 8 there, that chapter 31, the Assyrian will fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, will devour him. So he will not escape the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers. God used other people to come against Assyria, but really it's not the sword of man that gets them. It's, it's the sword of God. He'll take care of them too. His rock will pass away because of panic and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And uh, so he gives the, the promise back to his people and to protect them uh, even despite all this judgment. Or he could have just blown everybody away and said, that's it. I've had enough. But... Uh, I think as God's church today, we face our enemies, we face the challenges. I think it's always a temptation to turn back to wor- to the world or, or Egypt, you know, the flesh for help. I think our first response always has to be that we should examine ourselves and confess our sins and and realize that it's only Him who will make things right. So we... Want to realize we always want to be looking at Him in faith and obedience and surrendering to His will alone constantly. So we have to trust in Him. He He is always the rock. He is always the fortress. He is always our protection. And uh, we can see even in this sense here, uh, He's going to protect His people, and His promises are always right and true. Isn't that good? <laughs> so basically, the same message. Line upon line, precept upon precept, it should stick. Dennis, haven't we heard this for five weeks? We might have another couple more weeks. That's right. The story goes on though, doesn't it? It's a great story. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening. Thank You for Your Word. It is something that can be understood. It is simple, but yet it's very profound, and it really is only understood whenever you open our hearts. And we as Christians, you're always um, there. May we seek your truth, may we seek your wisdom, may we seek your counsel, so we too can desire to go back to the things of the world, uh, the uh, Egypt, the flesh. But we know that your spirit and your truth is what we must always seek, no matter what our situation. In Jesus' name, amen.